Church family, it is such a sweet thing to worship with you as I have done for the last few moments. And I often love to begin with uh, perhaps some, something humorous, something to draw you in. But this morning, I, I feel a special measure of God's grace moving in our worship. And I want to continue in a spirit of reverence and say to you that I have the opportunity and the privilege and the honor today to begin a sermon series that I don't think could be more timely. I want to preach to you a series of sermons centered around the wisdom of God. Now, for those of you who are guests of ours, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, and we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and I would love the opportunity to preach to you a sermon simply entitled, The Wisdom of God. The reason that I think this message and this series is so important to us as a people is because what we are facing as a people is not new. One of the temptations whenever you want to build people's interest around a particular subject is to say we're in uncharted waters. We're navigating a journey no one has ever navigated. And there may be times in your life where you're asked to walk through something that you've never walked through, and therefore for you, it's new. But one of the challenges, and yet one of the blessings of following the Jesus that you just so beautifully sang about, is that we're not the first generation of people to hold dear the gospel, and we're not the first generation of believers that have been charged to not move away from the gospel to not negotiate the gospel, to not compromise the gospel. And this morning, as we walk into the book of 1 Corinthians, what we find is that the Apostle Paul, who planted this church at the end of his second missionary journey, got word of some struggles and wrote this and several other letters back to them, is addressing challenges that the Corinthian believers are facing that are as real and as relevant today as they have ever been. And at the point of tension, if you peel back all the layers of language and culture, the generations that differentiate us from those Corinthian believers, them being in the first century, of course, us being here in the 21st century, when you think about all those differences, once the layers are peeled back, what you find is that at the heart of the human struggle is this tension between, am I the center of my world or is King Jesus the center of my world? Am I the Lord of my life or is he the Lord of my life? Am I the one charged to chart the course for my soul or has he predetermined a path for me to walk on? And I, am I going to place my confidence in eternity, in my own ability to rationalize my way to being a superior being? Or do I cast my lot on his mercy seat and ask for his grace to be poured out in my life? This is the great battle of the world today. And whenever you begin to introduce a subject like the wisdom of God, the temptation is to say, well, we're going to can contrast the wisdom of God from the wisdom of those outside the church. But actually, Paul has a deeper threat in mind. 
Paul is not dealing with the Roman or the Greco-Roman world of the first century that knows not Jesus. Paul is dealing with a church of people professing a relationship with Christ, yet the world's thinking is begun to penetrate their own theology. They've allowed the world's value systems and the world's rationalization and the world's view of itself and of man as center of itself to infiltrate their treatment of the gospel. Now, we know that wisdom in and of itself is a good thing. In fact, we all know that famous verse from the book of James. I'm not preaching from James this morning, but James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So not only is God the possessor of wisdom, he is not stingy of it. He wants to share it with any man or any woman who would ask. So when we speak about wisdom, it's important that we define what we mean. Speaking of definition, I've come in contact with a few terms that are new to me, terms that I did not read while studying in seminary, terms that perhaps I hadn't even heard about within the last four or five, six years until they've developed. One of those terms is deconstruction. I don't mean tear off your porch to get a new one. Deconstruction is a term used for people who are beginning to walk away from the faith and deconstruct the religion of their youth. Now, here's the deal. If you had a bad religious upbringing, if you were given a false narrative, if you were involved in a false church, or a cultic practice, or a false religion, then deconstruction can be a great thing. But more times than not, whenever the term deconstruction is used, it's used of people who come from the Christian tradition beginning to take apart their beliefs one by one and strip themselves of the identity of being a born-again Christian, which leads to the second term. People who stress being born again you know, people like me, and I hope you, we carry the label evangelicals, evangelical Christians. Now, again, that label can be loaded, and any person can use any word to mean anything. We recognize that. But at the root of evangelical Christianity is the belief that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. Therefore, he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He also possesses the sole way... S-O-L-E, soul way. Of course, it's S-O-U-L too, the soul way. He possesses the soul way to have a relationship with God because he offers the forgiveness of sin through the shedding of his blood. And therefore, Christians quote Jesus, evangelicals. We quote Jesus when we say to people what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. This is why this phrase, I'm not just someone who identifies in the Christian tradition, I am a born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. That is an evangelical. So people who are moving away from that, who are deconstructing, have now coined a term for themselves called exvangelicals. They've walked away from the faith. Some of you know famous bloggers and writers and artists who have come out recently and renounced, I am no longer a follower of Jesus. They've de constructed. No venom toward them, no hatred, no anger, no bitterness. The sermon is not about them, but it's becoming more and more and more common. And the church must equip her body, 
the brothers and the sisters in this room to know how to deal with these things. How should we think of these things when people deconstruct and identify themselves as exvangelicals? I was reading one article in USA Today. The article's a couple of years old. It's written by Danny Fankhauser, and she interviewed 11 former evangelicals and asked, what did you learn? What did you leave behind, and what did you learn? Now, I chose, just for brevity, to summarize what she discovered from these people. They said, you need to leave behind your belief system and do what is healthy for you. Secondly, find a belief system that suits you. Notice the two pronouns that end the first two sentences, you. Connect with God then, of course, on your terms, and then whatever belief system you have found and whatever you have determined to make yourself happy and however you have determined to connect with God, find an affirming church of that. Now, the term affirming church can mean a lot of different things. To some degree, I hope every church is affirming of loving people, but that actually is language related to churches that have abandoned biblical theology in relationship to sexuality and gender and marriage and are affirming all sorts of lifestyles. Join one of those churches, explore other belief systems, and this is the one that caught me. Retain the intellectual, but drop the supernatural. This is the new Christianity. This is what is being encouraged by those not outside the church, but those who would identify themselves within the Christian tradition. And before you think I'm about to scratch out a spot and pitch a fit with them, that's not my point. My point is, is that this is not new. By the time Paul wrote to Corinth, there were people who were putting more emphasis on the spiritual leader's ability to wax eloquently and speak with great rhetoric, to argue according to the human mind. And they were less emphasizing what they found as the less attractive, undesirable parts of the gospel. And if there is one symbol, if there is one word, If there is one truth of the gospel that did not flow well in a Greco-Roman society that elevated Greek philosophical thought or even advanced Jewish rationalism, it was the idea of an ugly wooden cross. And it is with that in mind that Paul begins to deal with what really summarizes and captures the wisdom of of God. Read with me in your Bible silently as I read aloud 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written and then Paul quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Latin Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one, verse 20, who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ 
crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he concludes this opening paragraph of this dealing with wisdom. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To introduce this series this morning briefly, I would like to condense our structure into a sentence. Here it is. Paul basically says, when it's all said and done, there's one word. That one word creating two worlds. And that two world, those two worlds, really show two different wisdoms. We began with one word. How you respond to that word creates two worlds. And those two worlds are built on the foundation of two vastly different forms of wisdom. Of course, the first word is the word of the cross. Look at the first phrase of verse 18. For the word of the cross. Now, why is the for there? It can be translated because also. It's because of verse 17, the closing verse of our passage last week. Look at verse 17. For Christ, Paul is saying, did not send me to baptize. Now, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear that message, they're all available online. But basically, the Corinthians were arguing over who baptized you. Well, if you were baptized by this guy, you got a better spirituality. Well, I follow this guy. Well, I follow that guy. And their hierarchical ranking of spiritual leaders was based on the ability of the leader to speak eloquently and to argue the higher mind of rationale and thinking that somehow through rhetoric and eloquent talk, you're going to superimpose spirituality onto other people. That we can ascend in our own wisdom and intellect to become a better version of ourselves. This is the gospel that is prevalent today. I want to do better, so I'm going to read more books, and I'm going to read my Bible more, and I'm going to attend church more, and I'm going to clean my language up. Maybe I'm going to make a decision to fast or to stop drinking, or I'm going to be in this small group, and I'm going to do that. And again, activities and behaviors are a wonderful thing in the Christian life. In fact, the Christian life calls these the disciplines of our faith. Our very vision at Church at the Mill is active activities to gather, to grow, to give, and to go. But when we peel back the layers of the human heart, at the very root, all we are doing when we change activity is putting our heart in a position for the Lord to do something supernaturally within us, which is why we argue it is your spiritual life that matters most. Your spiritual life informs your cognitive life. Your spiritual life empowers your physical life. It is your spiritual life that prepares you for eternity. And in the Corinthian debate, what was happening within the church is that people were beginning to divide themselves under which leader seemed to have the most amount of what they determined to be wisdom. It's preacher worship. That's what it is. And Paul is saying in verse 17, I'm glad I wasn't involved in all that, so you can't pin me with this, even though they had pinned him with it. And coming off that thought, 
He wants to go back to what really matters. And that's why he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Paul says, I'm not here to impress you into being my follower. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And there, the Holy Spirit illuminates Paul's mind, and he begins to think about the power of the cross, which is why verse 18 says, For the word of the cross, that's the word. Now, the word cross, of course, in the original language, the word is pronounced thoros. It it means cross or stake, and we know the actual symbol of the cross. We know the shape of the cross. But Paul's not talking about the actual noun cross. The word of the cross is if you were to condense all gospel preaching into one message. So the linchpin of the gospel is that Jesus died for us. Not that we try to do better, not that we impress God, but that God in his infinite grace and his unwavering righteousness gave us his son to bring mercy by pouring the full wrath of his judgment out on his son that we might have the payment of our sins made. This is the word of the cross. And how you view that one word leads to, secondly, two worlds. There are ultimately and spiritually only two groups of people in the world today, which is why verse 18, right after the first phrase where he says, for, for the word of the cross, notice what happens, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, notice he's talking to Christians. To us who are being saved, it is what? For us it is being saved, it is the power of God. Now notice something ironic there. If the word of the cross is foolishness to those who will not believe, who have rejected it, you would think he would use the opposite. The antonym of foolish is wise. Are we not preaching a sermon on the wisdom of God? But that's not what he does. Eventually, he's going to connect the two together, but he says, the word of the cross makes no sense to people operating from human wisdom. It's folly. It's foolishness. Kings aren't supposed to die. Messiahs are supposed to liberate, not be reigned upon by Roman wrath. This does not make sense. But he says, to those who believe, it's the power of God. The power of God. In other words, the means by which God delivers people from being lost to being saved is the efficacy, the effectiveness of the work of the Christ on the cross. It's not his reign or his rule. It's not his perfect sinless life, though that was an important prerequisite. It's not his virgin birth. It's not the signs and wonders he performed. It's not the miracles. It is the day where he died for us. And let me tell you why that needed to be a real day. Because in DJ's life, sin is real. It does not exist in the mysterious realm of possibility. There are literal thoughts and literal actions and literal words that I think, say, and do that are an affront to a holy God. And so if my sin is real, then the payment needed to be real. If the payment needed to be real, the blood needed to be real. 
If the blood needed to be real, the body needed to be real. And if the blood and the body needed to be a perfect sinless sacrifice, then God in the flesh had to die. And this is the word of the cross. A Christ without a cross is a savior without salvation. There are many people who will elevate Jesus as a spiritual teacher, as one of many religious leaders, as someone to be adored and admired. One of the ways to find your way out in theology that sounds biblical but is unbiblical is to listen for phrases like, Jesus came as an example. We are to follow the path of Jesus. I believe Jesus is one of the great spiritual figures of history. These are buzzwords for people who have decided there are elements of Christianity worth hanging on to, but the bloody, terrible death of the Messiah is antiquated, it is ancient, it is gruesome, it is barbaric. The problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible could not be more clear that there is one word that leads to two worlds. And these two worlds are really built on two wisdoms. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And this is why Paul, as soon as he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for us who believes or for us who are being saved. And by the way, that, did you notice that? Being saved. Preacher, that's a little confusing. Did not we profess that these brothers and sisters who were baptized a few moments ago are being baptized because they had been saved? Well, I thought we had been saved. But he says we're being saved. So are you saved in the past? Are you being saved in the present? Or will we be saved in the future? Well, you know how I answer those questions. Yes. Yes. Let, let me show you what I mean. Past tense being saved. For in this hope, Romans 8, 24, we were saved. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. April 1986 for me. I was saved. I can take you to the church where it happened. But let me show you the present part. In the present tense, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and by which you are being saved. 2 Corinthians 2, 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And not to leave the future out, just give you one example of the future, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, past tense, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So many have taught, and you may have heard this before. It's a good reminder if you have. When we are saved, we're justified. We're not to be fearful of condemnation. We're forgiven once and for all. I hope none of you who trust Christ worry about your salvation. If it is conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is only conviction that he wants you to shore it up, to nail it down. Don't put your hope in a hope. Make sure you know that you know, but you can know that you know. I know that I know. You can know that you know that you have a relationship with Christ. If you don't know that, don't leave today. We would love to talk with you about that. No strings attached attached to that, no manipulation. We would love for you to know you can know. But the scripture also says that once you are justified, Christ spends the rest of your earthly life sanctifying you, transforming you outward into being what he's declared you inwardly and eternally to already be. And then one day upon your death or his return, you will experience the full 
example of being glorified. So justified, was saved. Sanctified, being saved. Glorified, will be saved. And the center of all that is the cross. And the cross creates these two wisdoms. Now let's talk about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Don't quote me. Don't quote Paul. Let's go all the way back to Isaiah. Look at your passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Paul quotes Isaiah, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, if that happens, then all the people who supposedly have the answers disappear, which is why verse 20 is a little bit of a rhetorical treatment. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is the wisdom of the world? That humanity is actually getting better. That if you give us enough education and enough wealth, enough prosperity, that evil will slowly disappear. Do you know how many people die today of murder? You know, Jesus said until he comes, there'll be wars and rumors of war. Think about what's happening right now and the tension and the buildup between the United States and Russia over the Ukrainian border. It's so ironic that the world's wisdom understands the tension that is there. I've talked with Ukrainian believers and Russian believers in our church who are disturbed and praying about this situation, who have family who are involved, family who will be affected. And the fascinating thing is, is that we have world leaders paying attention to that border, and then we have world leaders with completely different opinions about the border we deal with. And all of this gets some totaled into this muck of worldly wisdom. There were people who thought World War I would be the last world war. You know, it wasn't World War I until World War II happened. You can't have a one without a two. And then after World War II, the decision was made by many, oh, we will organize the world so that there is never major military conflict. We don't want war. The Christians should seek peace at all, at every side. But it is a fascinating revelation that humanity, while may be making advances in technology and knowledge by God's grace, is not becoming less evil is not becoming less likely to rebel against God. And when we find this in our own heart and in our own lives, we begin to understand what he's saying through Isaiah. He's saying, you're going to spin your wheels through human wisdom? Fine, I will frustrate that. This is said in a New Testament way in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul argues that the knowledge of God should be obvious to anybody that can watch a sunrise, that can see a baby be born. It's obvious that there is a God. He goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Think about what we are debating now as a country that was not even debated five 
years ago. Should we be angry? Should we be judgmental? Should we be in a bad mood? No, we are to be joyful people, kind people, and good neighbors. But at the end of the day, what we see in this digression is the world imploding on itself because the center of human wisdom is the human heart. You know what Gordon Fee said about this in relationship to God? In this discovery of a greater being, humans really reveal something. He says a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness, fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creature and not the creator. The Corinthian problem and the world's problem is, is that they want to bring their worldview and shape God according to what they have determined to be likely or they have determined to be acceptable. But Paul says we're not given that liberty. We can't move away from the gruesome truth of our own wickedness and sin, but the great and limitless love of God. And if you want to show me and you want to show Paul, and you want to show the world where the love of God for sinners and the wickedness of sin intersect, I'll tell you, it's called Calvary, which is why Paul says we never stop talking about the cross. When people want signs and wonders, we point them to the cross. When people want a rational ascent, we say, wait a minute, it goes back to the cross. I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, but let's quote. Look what the passage says, 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We don't just preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. John got to see the throne room in Revelation 5 when God is going to display before John everything that's going to happen in the future. You know all the stuff that scares you to death when you read the Bible? When John is seeing the throne room, there in the center of the throne room is the scroll with the seven seals that have to be broken and the scroll of the end times will be read. And no one is worthy to open the scroll. In other words, no one is worthy to bring forth the end of history, to usher in the new heaven and the new earth, to consign those who reject Christ to hell and to reward those who've received him to heaven. No one is worthy. And so John begins to weep and one of the elders comes and says, weep no more, look. And in Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. What was he? He was a lamb. What were lambs known for? Sacrifice. What stands? A living lamb or a dead lamb? I am not a farmer, but dead animals do not stand. Only living ones do. Every word matters. A lamb standing as though... It had been slain. I believe that when you and I meet Jesus, we will still see the scars on his hands and his feet. We will still see the scar in his side. And I believe for all of eternity, one of the greatest sources of worship every time we see King Jesus is that his scars remind me what it cost him to get me there. I saw a lamb as having been stained. So I will not move away from the cross. I will not disregard the preaching of repentance. 
I will not downplay the depth of my wickedness, and I won't stop proclaiming the blood. I did not need God to like me or to love me or to shape me or to mold me or to woo me. I needed God to die for me, and he did. And this is why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. And when you preach him crucified, you hold right up in front of people a mirror of morality, and they have to decide, does God determine right or wrong, or does the human heart? And if God determines right and wrong, then God has declared all of us as sinners, but he's also equally and passionately declared his intense love for us. So, Recognizing the depth of our sin and the limitless ocean of his love, he pours grace out onto us because he poured wrath out on Jesus, which is why you cannot separate the preaching of the gospel from the preaching of the cross. It's also why accepting Jesus is not tacking him onto your agenda. It is dying spiritually the way he died physically. Because of the cross, you have to think about your sex life. Because of the cross, you choose your words differently. Because of the cross, your finances should reflect a kingdom perspective. Because of the cross, even when you don't feel in love, you love your wife and you keep your vow. Because of the cross, there are no excuses for your involvement in a fellowship of believers. Because of the cross, you take all your dreams and all your passions, many of which are not sinful, and you hold them up and you say, Lord, this is who I am and this is what I want. But because of the cross, I die to self. Anything in this stack of stuff that I'm chasing that does not honor you has to go. And anything that you want me to use for your glory, I will use. Because at the cross, you bought me. The gospel is the cross. And when we think about the cross and preaching it, we're reminded of this. And I'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Some of the first Christians were slaves. Somewhere between 25% to one-third of Rome were slaves. In the 1800s, during an excavation of a wall that dated back to the first century, they found some early Roman graffiti. See, they were knuckleheads before they were spray paint. <laughs> and someone was making fun of a Christian. His name is Aleximenios. They scratched out Aleximenios, and in front of him, was a man on a Roman cross with a donkey's head. And this is how they chose to make fun of this Christian. Aleximenios worships God. They found it quite comical. So his God was depicted as a man with the head of a donkey. It is a great summation of how the world sees a king on a cross. Not too many years ago, a new hymn was written. You know the hymn, In Christ Alone. We started out low, In Christ Alone, and then it builds up. 
One of the verses in the hymn says this, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, that's deity of Christ, virgin birth, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Remember, he was rejected by his own. Till on that cross as Jesus died, and here comes the line of the hymn, this is the lyric, that the wrath of God was satisfied. A more liberal division of our friends and neighbors in the Presbyterian Church are the Presbyterian USA churches. Presbyterian PCA churches and Presbyterian ARP, which stands for Associated Reform Presbyterian, are more conservative. They would line up more with our theology, but the more liberal progressive faction of Presbyterianism is the USA, and the USA Presbyterians would not print this hymn in their hymnal unless the author would change that line to say the love of God was magnified. The author would not. Yes, the love of God was magnified, but the reason they would move away from that is the same reason they move away from preaching Christ crucified. The thought of the wrath of God is distasteful. The thought of the wrath of God for your sin and my sin is not something that is warm and friendly and seems inviting. Even the committee that was chosen said, we do not believe that God crucified his son. I do. Jesus was sent according to the predetermined plan of God to die for the sins of the world. And nothing happens that is not within the realm of the sovereign control of God. And so God lovingly sacrificed his son that we may have life. When George Brennard was preaching this once, some teenagers in the back were heckling him. It disturbed him during the service, and so that night he began to write a poem about how much it meant to him to have an old, rugged cross. And he wrote that hymn, and in that hymn he has this great line, Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. Oh, the old rugged cross. I have one question. Is the wisdom of God on display in your life? The person you date, if you're not married, is your relationship with them, how you treat them, how you behave in their presence, your physical relationship with them, which should be very minimal before marriage, does it reflect that Jesus died for you? If you're married, is the way you love your wife a daily reminder that she does not belong to you, though she gave her life to you? She belongs to a king who died for her. She should be treated accordingly. Mom and dad, thousand things you got to worry about with your kids I get it but do they know that Jesus dying for you is the defining moment of your identity the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God 
unto salvation. Display that wisdom in your life.